spirit, to your healing, to restoration, every broken place made whole, that he would know you and see you in deeper levels, that you would do new things, that you would bring new people, um, that you would give him more vision, um, all the things that you have planned and destined for him. Lord, I pray that you would breathe hope over him, that you would bring people to support uh, the work that's going on in Scotland and the work that he is doing. We thank you for him. We pray you would bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. I am uh, Steve Hambrick, and I am lead pastor at Vintage, and I'm very, very, very excited uh, for for this morning and what God's doing here at Vintage. And I, uh, we've been, if you haven't not been here, we've been going through uh, Paul's letter uh, to Titus, and we are now in chapter three. I do encourage you, if you have not been here first time at Vintage, we're going to go back. We've got about six. So go back to our three-week study on Ephesians, kind of as a ground groundwork that we were building for Titus. And then you can dive into Titus from there. Uh, Titus is going to be Paul's kind of... Uh, Paul's work, honestly, of coming to the, the people in Crete and Christians in Crete saying, hey, listen, it's really important how you live your life, right? It's, it's important to have right doctrine and right words, but it's also incredibly important that you have right actions that go with it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But as we talked, as Lantus here, talking about this heartbeat of revival, right, heartbeat of God's movement, how many of you have been maybe some level some level student of revival, read books on revival. Please show this show of hands. I have a high level of interest. Uh, how many of you have been praying for a revival in the church in some form or fashion for, for years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started praying for a revival when I was about 14 years old. It's been kind of an ongoing prayer of mine. Uh, as, as Lance was talking this morning, just uh, honestly about the blueprint of Scotland, this uh, seedbed maybe of revival, uh, this work of God's spirit, recognizing man, so much even what happens for us spiritually here in the, here in the West and the church today was honestly shaped and formed by, by the history of God's movement and recognizing that we don't just see those as historical events. They are historical events, but we believe that they have a, 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 a groundwork, right? Maybe these seedlings of what we believe God wants to do today. Right. We believe God wants to move today. We believe God wants to to bring out an outpouring of his spirit. We believe that he wants to to bring a wave of his spirit, a move of his spirit, a revival. And the nature of revival, there's always a couple of things. And obviously, there's lots of things with revival. But if you were to kind of get to the foundation of what revival looks like, it's this. One, there's a reviving, a coming alive of the people of God in church, right, with a passion for Jesus, a, a passion for, for the for the world work of God. There's just a work that happens in the individuals, those who are in relationship where they are just different people, right? They're different people. There's this movement that happens and all of a sudden there are people who are walking with Jesus and all of a sudden it's like overnight they just want to run with Jesus. They want to be saturated in him and give all that they have. The other part of revival that occurs is there's always a movement of God's heart in the lives of individuals so that those who don't know Jesus are drawn to him. That's the idea, right? There's always a two-part. It's the people of God come on fire for Jesus, and then the unbelievers, the not-yet-Christians who are around, are then drawn, right, are drawn to the work that God is doing in the lives of his people. 
There's always these two components. There's the work that he does in us, and then there's the work that he does through us. The idea is like John Wesley used to say, just set me on fire and so people can watch me burn for Jesus, right? That's the idea. That's the nature of revival. It's this heartbeat that God awakens in us. We become so, so I don't say singularly, but in some ways singularly focused on the work of God, the move of God, the heart of God. And the idea is as simple as, simple as this. That all of a sudden then for us, we know revival is beginning to come when the lives of individuals like us in the church start coming on fire for him. But then the things that are on God's heart begin to grab hold of us and we can't help but go after the things that Jesus wants us to go after. Primarily, the number one thing on God's heart are those who are far off from him. That makes sense. The idea we know revival is moving in the hearts of our people, right? Because a move demands that our hearts come into alignment with his heart, which means we all of a sudden have a heart for those who don't know Jesus because it defined who Jesus was. And that honestly is what we see in Titus. Paul, Paul loves Loves the church in Crete, but he is passionate about those who are not yet Christians, those who are far off from God, coming to know Jesus. It it is it has grabbed hold of him. It's defining him, and he's looking at the church and saying, guys, it's really, really important that this begins to get a hold of you also. Your primary call as a people is to live your life in such a way that as if you are burning and people are being drawn to you so they can come to faith in Christ themselves. You see, it's one thing as we sit here today, I want you to hear me very clearly. Sometimes we go into church and we love to sit there and listen to a pastor preach to make sure that he's saying the right things. Right? So we sit out there and we kind of judge things that he says, make sure he gets everything right, rather than allowing God to grab hold of your heart and convict you of righteousness and move you into a place of passionate love for Jesus and passionate love for those who don't know him. So as we finish this, as we come into the last couple of weeks of Titus, I'm just simply asking you, please, would you take hold of the message that Paul's trying to, to get through to the church in Crete and recognize the message is timeless? He wants us to have a heart for him that burns with passion. Where the things of this world and, and the things, the passions that we have and the longings that draw us, they would just begin to fade and we would fall more in love with him. And that we would then recognize that our own hearts maybe need a shift so that we can fall more in love with the ones that he gave his life for and died for. All I'm inviting you to is a simple prayer. Jesus, convict me. Convict me of the things that are true and that you believe. And convict me, God, so my heart is in line with your heart for love for you. And love for the not yet Christian. So, Father, as we even dive in this morning, I, I pray and I just recognize church is a, a wasted time if we're not committed to let you change us. And I just surrender my own heart this morning, Jesus.
I just confess before you that I would prefer not to have conviction from you. I would prefer just to go about my business and live the life that I want to live in my own time, my own schedule, just giving myself to the things that I want to give myself to. So I just give you my heart this morning, and I'm asking Jesus, would you convict me of sin and of righteousness and lead me and the rest of our people into the way everlasting, God, to love you and to love those who don't know Jesus. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, heavy teaching uh, on responsibility and right action, right? If you go back and we went, went through chapter two, kind of chapter two, all of chapter two is like a heavy teaching on responsibility, a right action. We talk about actions and words lining up, right? Because we know that actions speak very loudly. In fact, most of the time, your actions speak more loudly than your words, right? They're called the life that we are called and the Cretans are called to live by Paul, it's an incredibly difficult one. If you go back and read through chapter 2 and the message to older men and older women and younger men, younger women, to, 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 to Titus himself, to the slaves who were part of the church, they were very, very difficult. It was a very, very difficult message. And the idea is that it's impossible. The things he called us to are impossible to live in our own strength, right? We need help. We need help and we need a power. We need an ability outside of ourselves. And so we talked about the work of God's spirit to pour out grace into your life, right? We said that grace Grace is the power that you have not deserved that God pours out into your life to give you ability to do the things that you can't do. Remember, I told you the message. I'm not sure Dad remembers the story, but I was four or five years old. See if you remember the story, Dad. Four or five years old, my mom's working at McDonald's corporate. Her boss invites her to come out and ride on the sailboat. Remember the sailboat story? You probably don't. It's a long time ago anyway. And so we're literally out there on this catamaran. This guy's going. The wind stops blowing completely. Completely, my dad's out fishing, and so we're just on the catamaran. The wind stops blowing, and we are dead in the water. Remember, I told you I had this moment, like, what can I do? As a four and five year old, make complete sense. We'll just blow our own breath into the sail. So I go like this, right? And absolutely nothing's happening, right? Nothing's happening because in my own strength, I can't fill the sails to make the sailboat move, right? I can't do it. I need what? The wind, the wind that God created to blow into those sails. He said, that's what God is providing. Paul comes and says, grace is available. The wind of God's spirit to blow into your sails, into the areas that you can't do things in your own strength. Every single day, the commitment that Paul makes is that Jesus is coming with grace like wind into sails to blow into every area of your life. That's the beauty. That's this glory, right? That Jesus says, I'm not leaving you as orphans, but I'm coming. I'm going to do this work in you. I'm going to blow into the sails. My grace is available. So when you wake up every day saying, Jesus, I just can't. He says, I know you can't fill the sails in your own strength today, but I can. Jesus, would you pour out grace again today? Thank you that it's available. In these scriptures, in Titus, I find it amazing how much time and energy Paul puts into the type of lives that Christians are called to live on an everyday practical level. Right? He spends so much time. It's, it's, a, it's not unique, but it's inordinate how much time he kind of lays out, giving, he gives laying out specific ways that they are called to, to live their lives on a very, very practical level, right? It's beautiful and powerful. Our study two weeks ago, Paul focused on, again, the response is important. Just kind of catching you up. Paul focused on the responsibility of believers and how they live their private lives. 
That was older men, younger women, right, that whole thing. Their private lives, their, how they lived in the home, how they, how they lived in their families. Not necessarily outside, but in their families. Because I don't know if you know, but everyone can see how a family's functioning, right? Your neighbors can look in and see how things are going in your home, right? And he's, and it's, especially in that Jewish culture, right, that Cretan culture, very, very visible. He's like, hey, listen, how you live your private lives in the family is super important. He can lay all of these things down. that this is how you live your private lives. But it, and it was a hard message. Here this morning in these verses, just verses 1 and 2, Paul shifts to a teaching on how they are to live life in the public sphere, in relation to their public duty, right? When you think about how you then, when you leave your home and you go into places of education, right? You go into the political realm. You go into the entertainment realm. You go into whatever world that you are living in uh, on an everyday business, everyday level in the context of business, life, whatever it may be, everywhere that you go every single day, right? Paul's going to come saying, now this is how you are to live your life in the public sphere. Why? Why? Why is this important? Because the idea is how they live in the public sphere will be a testimony of who Jesus is and how they live and their actions will either either repel people from Jesus or draw them in. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 of Titus. It says this. Paul says to Titus, hey, remind them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind them to be obedient. Remind them to be ready for every good work. Remind them to speak evil of no one. Remind them to avoid quarreling. Remind them to be gentle. And remind them to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That is super practical language, isn't it? Listen, in the Cretan world, the Cretan church, they had to live lives that promote, no different than ours, that promote behavior and attitudes that will reinforce an image of Christians as people who support and respect the social order, steering away from behaviors that might appear subversive, where subversion is absolutely non-essential. The Christian movement would always, always be seen to be subversive to traditional religion because it said no to idolatry. The idea is that Christianity always, always kind of had like one strike against it because they never were part of the emperor cult. They were never worshiping like the rest of culture did. So it would matter even more how they lived their life because they already had one massive strike against them. Paul's coming and saying, we already had the strike against us. Therefore, it's imperative how you live your life. The pushback on traditional religion in and of itself, that would have been enough to put them at odds with their neighbors, to put them at odds with the culture in which they lived. And Paul is telling them here in Titus, he's telling them again in 1 Timothy, hey, support Rome. Support Rome. Don't cause an unneeded stir in the empire. As we read in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, is on the screen. But they are to pray for their godless leaders, support them, and to live quiet and peaceful lives in godliness and all holiness. For Paul, this is, this is important. 
For Paul, this is his preferred strategy for evangelism and kingdom expansion. Preferred strategy for evangelism and kingdom expansion. He's leading the way from subversive tactics. He's teaching them to not live at odds with people. As we discussed in the culture of Crete weeks ago in our background study of Titus, Cretans as a people, they were a subversive people. They were notoriously turbulent, quarrelsome. They were impatient of all authority. Polybus, the Greek historian, said of them that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and destructive wars. Great place to raise children, it sounds like, right? But this is the culture that they are living in here in Crete. Here's what the church is up against. Here's the culture that they're facing. Paul wants Titus. Listen, Paul is calling Titus to shape Christians who will embody the ethical ideas of that culture. And this is important to be good citizens. You could literally say that he is coming and saying, the evangelistic tool that I'm calling you to is simple. Be good citizens. That's it. Be good citizens. Proclaim the gospel, yes, when you're with people, share it. Live these lives with your family in such a way that it models Christ. And then just be good citizens every single day of your life, and it will lead people to Jesus. By being good citizens, right, the Christians' winsome behavior will provide the witness of a virtuous life. They will be seen as kind, and it will show a positive value for the Christian gospel, and people will be drawn to it while maintaining the group's differing convictions about being those who worship God. The idea is this, if you just want a simple phrase to remember Paul's message, you could go sing the song, they will know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Yes, by the way that we love one another. And more importantly, maybe at least for those outside, the way that we love people outside the four walls. So with that in mind, This passage is going to lay out multiple qualifications for being a good citizen. Before we dive into that, look at the first part of verse 1. If you have your Bibles, this starts out with the phrase, remind them or remind the people. Remind them or says just remind the people. So them or people literally refers in verse uh, verse 1 to the people and the members of the churches. Not talking about Cretans in general. But then speaks to, or people literally speaks to those who are inside the church. And the idea, the word remind, indicates that the duties now insisted upon by Paul to Titus, these are things that have already been spoken. Paul probably preached them along the way. Titus is continuing to speak, so he's reminding them of things that have already been spoken. This is not new to them. They would already know it, right? It indicates duties now insisted upon that they have known always. He's just reminding them of what they've been taught. Here's the important piece. Early Christian preaching, early Christian preaching was not limited just to the gospel presentation, not just the gospel presentation, but included instructions concerning the practical implications of that salvation. 
there is salvation and then a life that goes along with salvation. So Paul desired that they would live these lives where their actions match their words. So it would create a favorable impression in the non-Christian world. So with that in mind, Titus is here to teach that a good citizen, one, is law-abiding. A good citizen's on the screen. You can put it there. A good citizen is law-abiding. Verse 1, Christians have a duty to government to be subject to rulers and authorities. They all recognize rulers and authorities. You understand that language. They recognize that unless laws are kept, life will become chaos. They give proper respect to those who are set in authority. They carry out whatever command is given them. Cretans might be anarchists, but Christians are not to be anarchists. They are not to be rebels. We do not subvert the government or disobey the government unless it brings us into direct conflict with the commands of God. He's saying, if you want to be a good citizen that leads people to Jesus, then I'm asking for you and telling you to be a law-abiding citizen, to not be subversive, to not be an anarchist, and to not go push back against the government because you just don't like the things that they're doing. In every way that they are leading you, that's not a to the will of God, then you follow and you obey. Number two, good citizens are active. Good, a good citizen is active serving the community. A good citizen is active in serving the community. It says we are to be ready for every good work in verse 2. This compliments, it's not on the screen, but just, you can just write it down, compliments Galatians 6.10, which says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity... We must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. It means being prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. Listen, I, I know I've told you a story, and this is, this is the nature of why we do foster care and why we're engaged in adoption. I'll never forget looking at our, our county commissioner one time years ago, and I said, man, does it shock you the level of influence that our little rinky-dink church seemingly has in the sphere that we live in because of our influence in foster care and adoption? He says, yeah, he says, it's shocking to me the level of influence you have. Why? Because when you give yourself to meet the needs of a community, every single person around you, including authorities and rulers, they recognize it and they're thankful. Like, have you ever been around somebody and they start, and you start talking, listen, at Vintage Eve, and you start talking about, hey, how we're involved in foster care, or how we're involved in adoption, or how we're involved at Abney in the, in, in the backpack program, or how we're involved in the sex trafficking center just down the street, and they go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like, have you ever, anybody ever had that? Really? To start talking about the things that we're doing at Vintage that you're proud of? Because we believe that in doing these good things in our community where there are actual needs. I've always said, listen, I want to come in and look at our neighbors and say, hey, we want to meet a felt need that you have, not the felt needs that we want to answer for you. Right? Like I look at it and say, I'm not going to come build you a coat closet when you got six coat closets down the road. I want to figure out what his actual need is in our community, and I want to meet that because I love Jesus and I love you. And when we do that, all of a sudden, it's as if Jesus is shining through us and people are drawn to him. The question you have to begin to ask yourself is simply this. 
Am I being a good servant and actively serving the community outside the four walls of the church and finding needs that need to be met and giving myself to them so that I can be a good citizen? Paul's coming and saying to everyone in the Cretan church, I'm asking that you do this. Third thing, he says, a good citizen is careful with their speech. The word literally in verse 2 says to speak evil of no one. This is where it says don't slander. This is the idea here in Greek. Literally means to not slander. Super fascinating is a common practice in Cretan culture, accepted by the community of hurling curses and vicious and rude statements at those who offended you, injured you, or just differed with you in your opinion. It was accepted but would not have been viewed as appropriate by Paul or a part of the culture that the church should accept because it was opposed to the will of God. And so he comes into the moment and says, listen, guys, stop speaking evil of people. Stop throwing out accusations about people. Stop saying negative things about people. It's not leading people to Jesus. Paul is saying here that to live counterculturally was imperative for the sake of the gospel. Slander. Listen, look at listen to the definition. Simply defined means speaking about others in such a way as to belittle or defame their character. I'm going to say this again, and I want you to think about every political advertisement that followed every single timeout at the football games last night. Because I'm going to say this. Every political person who says they are a follower of Jesus, man, they're, 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 they're towing a difficult and dangerous road. It says this, slander simply means speaking about others in such a way as to belittle or defame their character. Paul's coming saying the church is called to build up, not tear down. We encourage, we don't discourage. We are to recognize Paul here is speaking about the community. He's speaking about the political system, the educational system. He's talking about you and how you talk about your boss, how you talk about your employees, how you talk about all the people in your life. When you sit around the Thanksgiving table here in a couple of weeks, how often do you get into the place where maybe you're not being careful enough about your speech or somebody in your family is not being careful about their speech and how how do you respond? My point is how we live every single day is impaired to speak evil of no one. Number four, a good citizen is tolerant and a good citizen is understanding. Verse two uses the phrase avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling. Good citizen acting Christ-like is not aggressive in their verbal or their physical interactions. The Greek word here for, um, for to avoid quarreling is omakos. Omakos, which means, I love this, not a fighter. This means not a fighter. Like, can you play that out in every single day? Like, do you, li- do you know people who just live their life every day to be offended and get into a fight? That's how they live their life. Everywhere they go, they're seemingly offended at something. They want to fight. And they want to get in an argument. Do you know anybody like that? Anybody raise their hand if you know somebody like that? Are you that person? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. And he's saying good citizens of the kingdom who lead people to Jesus, 
That's just not who they are. Every single time someone does something that offends, they just step back and go, let me look at this from the perspective of the other person in front of me, not looking to get into a fight, not looking to be offended, not looking to quarrel. I'm not going to be a fighter by nature. You know, there's a difference between like fighting for justice and just fighting because someone says something or doesn't. Listen, like I've sat in so many, so, so many conversations where I'll watch people literally around the political realm just get in just unneeded arguments. And it's just super silly. And Paul's coming and saying, as good citizens, you've got to stop doing that. Number five, good citizens, good citizens are, yeah, I'm going to keep on going. Da, 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 sounds really good. Okay, number five, good citizens are gentle and they're meek. Gentle and meek. The last two phrases, it says, not, do not, they don't stubbornly, don't stubbornly insist on his or her own rights, but act in courtesy and patient self-control. The idea of meekness. Meekness is a word we don't use, and I, I can't do it justice this morning, but meekness speaks, and this is a phrase I want you to write down, it's power that we restrain for redemptive purposes. Power restrained for redemptive purposes. Like Jesus was the God of all of creation, the most powerful being ever to ever set foot on the earth, could have done everything. But he says, I'm going to come and die because it's the number one way for you to enter into salvation, into eternity. And I'm going to be like a lamb, like a lamb before the shear and just silent. I don't know about you, but I live in a culture where people want to exert their authority, exert their power, and make a name for self rather than use their power to help people. Using their power to lead people. Using their power, in a sense, to die to self so that others can live. Gentle and meek, they're not stubbornly insisting on their own rights, but act in courtesy and patient self-control. Paul is saying, hey, these things, this is actually how evangelism works. He's not looking for some massive crusade where you're preaching the gospel and thumping Bibles over heads of people, Right? That's all fine and good. He's saying, what I really want you to do, that's want you to be a good citizen. I want you to be a good citizen on behalf of Jesus and how you live your life. I want you to come and give yourself away. I want you to come and love well, right? His primary way of evangelism is to promote the growth and the health of the community in which they live by being good citizens, by using their actions to go along with their words to proclaim the good news of Jesus. You have a responsibility with your actions in your private life. You have a responsibility with your actions in your public life. And in both places, you were called to be a good citizen. And in by doing that, you all of a sudden are like a like you're set on fire and people are drawn to you. But I will tell you this, when you walk in humility and in self-restraint, when you walk in true love and giving your life away, guess who's drawn to you? Everybody. Everybody. I just want to be around him. 
It's around Mark Fowler because, man, everywhere he goes, he's just so humble and self-restrained. He's always fighting for other people, and he's just so kind. I don't know what it is about him, but, I mean, he's not that good-looking kind of. But, I mean, it's like I just draw to him, right? Yeah, no, no, I'm just speaking truth, bro. I'm just speaking truth. And so, now, he's very good. Mark, you're very good-looking. All right, now, and much more muscular than I am for sure. All right, now, <clears throat> I want to read something to you that paints the picture that this has actually been God's intended plan for a long time. You all know Jeremiah 29:11, right? The plans I have for you, says the Lord. Such a beautiful verse. Let's get to the verses you don't always read. We've read it before, though. You've got to remember, Israel's been brought into captivity in Babylon, and you have all these prophets who are saying, in so many words, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably coming and saying something along the lines of, hey, guys, we're going to be subversive here. We're not going to bow down to these Babylonians. God's going to bring us out. God's going to protect us. God's going to call us back into Jerusalem. He's going to do not, do not get settled here, right? Do not make this your home. We want God's calling us back. I just see the Lord saying he's going to draw us out of Babylon and take us back into the promised land. And this is what God says through Jeremiah, chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, that's the only place that you will find your welfare. Do you begin to see about being a good citizen, living your life, right, focusing on this? For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying for you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. It's just a simple understanding here saying, hey, wherever you live, love the place. Love the people. Own it and be a good citizen. Fight for the things that are the needs of the community in which you live. Give yourself to the people. Be somebody who is a magnet and draws people. Don't repulse them by your stupid, arrogant actions. Be like Jesus. Be kind. Be loving. Be humble. Be meek. You may be smarter than everybody else in your cul-de-sac. They don't have to know that. Just use your smartness to bless them and to love on them. Why? Because all of a sudden, they will start knocking on your door at 1 o'clock in the morning when all hell's broken loose in their life. Why? Because they're drawn to the person who's burning for the love for Jesus and expressing it wherever they go. That is Titus. That's the heart of revival. That's the movement of God. And let's be a part of it. Just be good citizens. How? By letting the breath of God blow into your sails and says, I know I can't do it in my own strength. Jesus, today, would you help me be meek? Would you help me be patient? God, would you come and would you breathe into my sails? I need you today, God. I want to burn for you. Let's pray.
Father, you are good and you are kind. Father, you are compassionate. And you're also the one whose eyes are burning like fire. And you have a robe dipped in blood saying, I am a God who fights for justice. And God, we have to be the same. I pray this morning, Jesus, just for each person who's here, that you would awaken us, Lord, to the way that you love us, you've empowered us, our identity in you. But I pray, Father, that we would come on fire for you. That our hearts, God, would burn for you and then burn for the things that are on your heart. I pray you would help us, God, to live this life that Paul has called Titus to teach about. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Invite our ministry teams to come forward. I really would like for you to spend some time this morning. Uh, maybe. So here's the deal. A couple of things. One, if you need anything, like want God to bring, just like need prayer this morning for anything in your life, physical healing, just a touch of God's spirit. If you just want more of Jesus this morning, our ministry teams just love to, to pray for you. If you want to celebrate and remember the, the, the blood poured out by Jesus on the cross, his body broken, and just remember the grace that's been poured out into your life and time to come and take communion this morning. But I really would ask that you just take some time this morning and, and have a conversation with Jesus uh, about what your heart is burning for today, right? And just invite the Holy Spirit, it's his job, to come and to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and to lead us to the things that he has for us, right? And so just invite the Holy Spirit to come, ask him to awaken your heart, to rekindle a passion for him. So you respond as the Lord leads. I'll come back up here in a few minutes after worship, and I will close this out.